Hello, Michael. Hey, Dwayne. Are you ready to talk about cronyism? Let's do it. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is cronyism and was recorded on January 16th, 2020. Please allow the person helping us today to introduce themselves. Hey, I'm Michael Lambert, and I'm a policy analyst here with Americans for Prosperity, and I handle corporate welfare and cronyism and a lot of other fiscal issues uh, that we work on here. Before we go too much farther, let's let's spend some time getting to know you. And if you don't mind, tell us a little bit, you know, where you're from, how you got involved in this, why you, why you like this issue so much. Sure. So uh, I'm originally from uh, Kentucky. I've lived in uh, the Northern Virginia, D.C. area for about five years now. I've been with AFP for about two and a half years. And uh, I've loved every minute of it, particularly because I get to work on issues like this uh, that deeply intersect with my personal principles and kind of my own world perspective. Um, you know, the reason this animates me so much personally and why I'm so thrilled to be able to work on it on a day-to-day basis is because this is the kind of stuff, it, it sounds counterintuitive, these are the issues that don't always get the headlines, right? They're not the super hot, sexy issues, um, like, uh, you know, topics of the day like immigration or criminal justice reform or trade sometimes these days, all of which are very important issues, but these are kind of the behind the scenes sort of issues, uh, that a lot of people don't necessarily consider, or haven't even realized as an issue, not certainly at the federal level, but even all the way down to the state and local levels too. Um, so it's it's something that I enjoy working on because I get to educate so many people on it um, and, and really kind of give them get them revved up for uh, you know the, the the fight that the that we're trying to engage in. Well, let's let, let's start with what cronyism actually is. How do how do you all define it? Sure. So in a nutshell, in one sentence, cronyism is the government picking winners and losers, right? So it's any time that the government um, inserts itself into a situation where voluntary exchange and free market signals uh, are ostensibly supposed to be operating on their own, right? It's the government putting their finger on the scale, basically saying, we favor this business sometimes or this particular industry. And they don't always say this explicitly, but that necessarily means that we uh, do not favor another business or another industry. And, you know, the undercurrent to all of this is that the taxpayer is the one either floating the bill or putting up significant financial risk um, should uh, any of these programs, you know, not come to bear or they fail. Right. And sometimes they do come right out and say, we don't favor these businesses. Yeah. yeah. That's absolutely true. They um, are, they like to have those big ribbon cutting ceremonies, being able to say, because of all the tax money that we've infused into whatever program we've been able to create, X number of jobs, or we've been able to, you know, this many number of warehouses or businesses have come to our state or, or what have you. Um, so they, politicians and, you know, lawmakers love to be able to have those kinds of events, uh, but they are quick to run away when uh, they, they don't pan out, which is very, very often the case. This sounds like it covers a lot of real estate. 
I mean, honestly, cronyism covers a lot of, of different subjects. So wh where do you want to start? Which one sh should we talk about first? Yeah, so um, that's one thing. Th that's one reason why I get so excited about this is because it's such a broad topic. It intersects with so many different policy areas that we work on here. Um, but to give you a little context about specifically how we define cronyism, they're basically it's basically broken down into three different subsections, at least as we look at it. So they include uh, financial support. So that means you know, kind of uh, the things that you and I are familiar with, spending subsidies, tax incentives, loan guarantees, and bailouts. Uh, the second bucket, if you will, are regulatory preferences. So that means uh, monopolies and, and government mandates. And then the third is protectionist policies, so your tariffs and your quotas. Um, all of that is, is this kind of a definition, a collective definition of what cronyism is. Um, but it also includes, you know, anytime, again, anytime the government basically expresses a preference, we define that as cronyism. So occupation, occupational licensure could be considered cronyism. Um, trying to think of some other ones, but it, it pretty much anywhere you look, uh, uh, when the government is involving itself and particularly when they're handing out some kind of favor, that would be cronyism. So let's, <clears throat> let's focus really on that first bucket and we'll go, yeah. go to the second and, and then the third, our, our vision, we exist to break barriers. Let's talk about that first bucket in, in through that lens. When we talk about barriers in that first bucket, what are we really talking about? What barriers exist there that we're trying to bust through? So the barriers that are put in place with policies like these and, and, and preferential treatment by government is basically stopping, again, voluntary exchange, you and I from being able say you and I had businesses or whatever, not being able to compete on a level playing field uh, that otherwise ought to exist. Um, if, you know, government comes in and, and hands, you know, Dwayne Co., you know, a $5 million loan or whatever. It's a good name. Yeah, exactly. Can I have that? Yeah, take it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Um, you know, we are, if we're competing in the same industry, then, you know, Lambert Inc. is necessarily going to be operating at a loss in terms of its uh, competitiveness, right? Mm -hmm. um, because you, uh, as Dwayne Co., necessarily have, you know, access and uh, the ability to, um, to make a lot of business decisions that you might otherwise not have been able to make. Um, and, and again, you know, policymakers and lawmakers would love to point to Dwayne Co. and say, well, you know, look at all the people he was able to hire. Look at all the investments he was able to make because of our, you know, benevolence. But they willfully ignore when Lambert Inc., uh, you know, loses out on the other side of that equation. So that's a major barrier. And that, it, it's obviously a very simplistic example. Um, but those are the exact kind of barriers that are put in place. It doesn't allow uh, us to engage in uh, mutual benef mutually beneficial exchange. You know, it goes right back to uh, a book that so many people have in their offices all over the country. And <clears throat> if you haven't read The Law by Frederick mm -hmm. Bastiat, it's, it's an absolute must read. But in, in The Law and in some other uh, writings, he talks about that which is seen and that which is unseen. And what you're talking about fits right into that. Mm -hmm. You will see these uh, policies put in place and then you see the people who pass those, they are out there being a champion of the direct visible results that happen almost immediately. And then there's no one out there talking about the people who, who are affected by this in a negative way. There's no one out there talking about the jobs that aren't created because of this action. No one is the champion of the unseen, the opportunity cost really of, of, of these actions. And, and because of that, it often seems like, like they have a net good. Right. And, and I think it's a good point to bring up opportunity costs because um, there are a couple of good uh, anecdotes in the last couple of years that we've seen 
that perfectly illustrate those unseen costs, right? Those those uh, things that those problems that exist merely for the fact that government got involved in the first place, right? So you consider um, a uh, HQ two, which is Amazon's their their big year long battle uh, to pit cities against each other, municipalities against each other to uh, to find a second headquarters, and uh, you know. Uh, um, at, at the end of the day, basically wound up being, you know, the state of Virginia and the state of New York, although they backed out, um, handing them untold millions in, in financial incentives. But um, but if you consider what they did for that, um, you bring up opportunity costs. Um, instead of doing that, the state of Virginia could have actually lowered uh, its corporate income tax by 5.6%, uh, reducing costs for, you know, thousands of businesses. Um, or on the other end, could have awarded close to 3,000 scholarships to the University of Virginia students, and uh, and uh, Arlington County could have actually hired some additional police officers as well. Um, so, it's a it's a huge um, a huge loss in terms of what could have been you know a worthwhile investment going to this one industry that frankly would have gone wherever the hell it wanted to go anyway. You know, if it wanted to come to Virginia or New York or Tennessee, where they uh, also opened another uh, uh, location, they in all likelihood would have done that. We see that across the board that these uh, industries or these uh, firms wind up going exactly where they're planning to anyway. It's not like Amazon is uh, struggling for money no, right now. No, yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. And, and one thing that came to mind when you were talking about that is this uh, is this race to the bottom that we see between states. I, I think about my home state of Missouri and Kansas. There's actually a compact now between the two states uh, mm-hmm. regarding Kansas City because mm-hmm. there's Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri. They were both going back and forth. Uh, for the record, Kansas City, Missouri existed first. Mm. So I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> but you see this also where it, it's almost, it's not even, it's not, it's not unusual. It's actually the norm now. It's expected that these businesses, if they come to a state, it, it's not, hey, we'd like to do business. It's what can you do for me? Right. And that right. is a dangerous trend. Right. It's a zero sum game. Um that ultimately means the taxpayers wind up losing. Um, and we can get into it later, but basically, you know, these businesses are more than likely going to wind up going where they say they're going to go anyway. And the jobs that they claim that they're going to bring to bear usually don't come with them or they are so um, so temporary that they will exist for a very brief amount of time and then completely dissipate. Um, and then on top of that, the economic incentive or the economic uh uh, effects that they always claim are going to be, uh, you know, that will exist as a result of their coming into town, almost are never as broad as they they uh, claim they're going to be. Would you put Would you put stadiums in this bucket? Yeah, yeah. So stadiums are a really good example and uh, something that we've had our eye on as a community for a long time um, because they are the the poster child. They are a perfect example of of this of the nefariousness of this kind of, uh, endeavor. So you, you know, you have a professional sports team and, uh, or you have some consortium of, of, of businesses or communities in a given area saying, well, we need, uh, you know, a football stadium or a soccer stadium or whatever it might be baseball stadium. And, uh, and, they get together and they decide, well, here's what it's going to cost. And, you know, we need the state or the city or whatever to put in X amount or the whole thing, whole kit and caboodle, whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, years will go by. It'll all be paid for by the taxpayers or most of it anyway. And uh, stadiums will arrive. Uh, and in some instances, the the team won't even come with them. You know, I, I forget off the top of my head, but we've had examples where uh, the the professional sports teams that were pledging to move to whatever city it might be as a result of this uh, of a stadium being put there wind up 
going somewhere else. So all of that supposed revenue that would have otherwise, you know, air quote existed um, or been brought in is completely a non-starter at that point. Yeah, we see that in St. Louis right now. They they have built the stadium for the Rams, then the Rams are no longer there, mm-hmm. and they're still paying for the stadium. Yeah, exactly. which was which was a big uh, point of contention when they were asking for a new stadium, and yeah. we, you haven't even paid for the one you had before. Right. So right. Uh, there there tends to be a little bit of a, almost needed an adult in the room. Mm-hmm. You didn't finish your dinner before, and you're not getting dessert, kind right. of thing. Right. So what what else when you think about this one let's let's review what bucket we're talking about again for those who are Sure listening. so um the main focus again the cronyism intersects with a ton of public policy issues but the the main definition that we tend to work with on cronyism are is financial support so those mm-hmm. are your tax incentives your tax credits um your loan guarantees your direct subsidies and uh, your bailouts uh, so that that kind of direct exchange of tax cash basically um, is what we would consider kind of the main uh, problem. What about <clears throat> all tax credits? I mean, I, I've had legislators tell me before, look, tax credits are good. It helps us support the good, good businesses out there. Yeah. So, th- you know, from our community perspective, um, we are extremely skeptical of tax credits um, in nearly every case. I don't want to say all cases because there are some instances where um, we, we will look at educational tax credits um, and some of the work that they do. I'm not an expert in that particular field. But um, but tax credits in, in terms of um, using tax dollars uh, or, you know, pro, you know, not penalizing businesses in taxes so that they behave a certain way um, is, is just as nefarious because it's basically, it's a control mechanism, right? I mean, it, it's basically... Um, the state saying, you know, engage in X behavior and we won't penalize you as much as, you know, the industry next door or whatever. And, uh, and, and while that might not be a direct transfer of cash, I mean, it's a, it's, it's just as bad on the back end because they're not having their burden isn't as big come next tax season. So they have more to, to work with in their own firms. Um, and you know, I, you know, I, as much as anybody else would want businesses to have as much capital as they rightfully earn, um, but if it means that taxpayers are getting screwed on the back end, then, you know, you, you, you tell me why that's an appropriate deal as a taxpayer. Right. Review. Tell us what bucket number two was again. We'll get into that. Sure. So uh, another big area that we consider under cronyism is regu- regulatory preferences. Um, so, again, those are um, uh, monopolies and government mandates. Um, and this is probably, despite the fact that in terms of cronyism, it's not like the biggest bucket that we consider. Regulatory preference is probably the most pernicious problem just in scale um, because you consider the, the tens, no exaggeration, tens of thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, federal and state regulations that uh, businesses must comply with. Um, and it just becomes so onerous that, you know, you, you, you don't know which way to to turn when you're trying to make a business decision because you're spending all of this time and energy and capital, frankly, trying to comply with all of these rules that were implemented, you know, to put generously, perhaps well-intended, perhaps they were trying to solve a good problem. But a lot of the time you have, uh, you know, uh, policymakers, again, with their thumbs on the scale, basically saying, well, you know, if we write the rule this way, then this particular industry won't be hurt as badly. Or, uh, or this particular firm might come out ahead. And keep in mind, um, the reason that this tends to be the case is those big firms, uh, your Amazons of the world, but not even that large, you know, any, any kind of 
large corporation or company that that has uh, the means, they will do everything they can in terms of hiring legal advice and expertise and lobbying power um, to represent their interests uh, to policymakers. Um, now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be allowed to have representation. I mean, by all means, if you can afford to go out and, and, and have that. But the, the net problem is that uh, they tend to be listened to more because uh, that representation tends to translate into you know, political dollars. Would, would you consider minimum wage laws as a part of this? Yeah, that's another good example. Um, you know, we as a, as a community tend to view that from a labor perspective, but it is a form of cronyism in that it favors, it necessarily favors certain uh, segments of the population over others, right? Um, so you consider a minimum wage and, you know, it's X, you know, it's, I, I forget what it is, like 725, I think federally or something, 750, something like that. Um, but what that necessarily means is that firms can't afford to perhaps hire people that they otherwise would have who, you know, might be eligible to train into certain rules, right? Or, um, or they might consider some, some prospective employees to be too expensive, you know, because they can't, uh, they can't afford, uh, they, they would otherwise like to hire them, but because there are these arbitrarily set, um, if floors, I suppose on, on the wage, that uh, they, they can't do it. So they lose out on talent, they lose out on skill, they lose out on the ability to innovate. And then on the other side of that, they're spending all of this money trying to meet certain levels of, uh, of uh, wages that it could otherwise be going to you know, other firm needs. But what gets lost um, in, in the minimum wage conversation is that the vast majority of firms are well above they pay well above certainly federal minimum wage, and, and given a particular state, I'm sure that there's a, a common thread uh, on state minimum wages too. Um, so you know when you hear this fight for 15 and all these things, you know, giving them the benefit of the doubt, you like to think that that's a well-intentioned idea. But the the, the problem is it's it, it ignores the reality that labor uh, is subject to market signals just as much as a widget would be, you know, mm -hmm. or, or whatever product you're making. You also see, I don't know if it fits in this, in the idea of cronyism, please let me know if it does, but you also see businesses out there that can afford to pay their people more than the minimum wage who are actually helping push that out there as a way to get rid of competition that can't. Yeah, you see that as well. And it goes back to my original point that you have a lot of these um, larger entities, these larger firms, and when they can, they will use regulation, in this case, the minimum wage to squeeze out their smaller competitors, right? Um, I, 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 you know, I, I wouldn't want to name names specifically, but, um, but there are tons of huge firms that everybody would, would recognize that are pretty public in doing this. Mm -hmm. um, they will absolutely lobby their state and local representatives and, and Congress to uh, ramp it up as high as they can because they know that they can, they can suffer a, a blow to their um, to their wage increase in a way that your mom and pop smaller firms are never going to be able to. Let's dive into this third third point uh, with protectionism. Yeah, so those are your uh, your tariffs and your your kind of trade policies, um, and this has obviously been in the news a lot lately. Um, you know, we, we've got a lot of tariffs on the table now. Although as of I suppose this week or this month with the the new trade uh, the phase one of the trade deal being signed, that it uh, it's a uh, moving in the right direction, but there's still a ton of bad tariffs on the on the books that are just hurting, just killing a lot of American industry um, that in, in and of itself is a form of protectionism, right? I mean, it's a, it's a form of um, American protectionism, right? It, it's a form of saying, well, our, our firms 
you know, there's nothing wrong with having pride in your own, you know, your own country and, and, and your own businesses. But to the extent that you want to completely isolate yourself from the rest of the world is very mercantilist, right? You don't want to, it's this, it plays into the zero sum game where every dollar I lose is a dollar gained by my competitor, which is just a complete fallacy. Which is not how trade works. Not how trade works at all. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not a trade expert, but I know enough to know that that is a complete economic fallacy. Um, but in terms of other specific protectionist policies, um, one huge fight that we just uh, that was just wrapped up in the last year uh, was uh, XM Bank reauthorization, so the Export Import Bank, um, and uh, I suppose it's not protectionist in the sense. I mean, it's kind of a financial financial support mechanism too, but it's it's protectionist uh, in the sense that it deals with international trade. Um, let's let's talk about that for a bit because yeah, that sure. is uh, something that was gone for a bit. Yeah. But now it's back. So let, let's talk about what it is and, and how it is clearly cronyism. Yeah. So the Export-Import Bank, in very simplistic terms, is basically a government agency that uses tax dollars um, to provide loan guarantees to businesses that export out of the country, right? They uh, ship their goods uh, you know, to countries all over the world. And it's an agency that's been around for nearly... A century or so. But to your point, um, we had an interesting test case of the Export-Import Bank essentially not existing for about four or five years. And there are a whole lot of procedural reasons why that is. Um, but the only important thing to note is basically their entire portfolio had a huge cap on it. So they were not allowed, they didn't have enough uh, members on their board of directors to authorize these huge loan guarantees. I mean, I mean, like hundreds of millions of dollars. And where does this money come from? This is a private bank that's funding all this? Well, they will say that they don't use tax dollars, of but that, so. that's, you know, that's uh, playing fast and loose with the terms. But it's it's taxpayer uh, uh, revenue, tax revenue, essentially. Um, and uh, but but we have an interesting test case where we see for about four or five years that the export import bank basically wasn't they were still making deals, but they weren't able to make these massive gargantuan loan guarantees. And the excuse that you always hear about um, XM. uh, uh defenders is well we need it to stay competitive with the global market and if we if we mess with it too much if we reform it too much then our you know our edge on export trade will just completely diminish but if you look at the numbers over that course of time where they had a cap on and they weren't able to do everything they wanted they didn't have carte blanche to do everything um exports actually went up out of the united states you know our export balance sheet looked completely fine in fact it had improved um, and certainly our competitive edge internationally was, if nothing else, it remained the same. It didn't, it certainly wasn't diminished. So it kind of made moot this entire point that, well, XM is so necessary because all the other, all of our counterparts in countries all over the world, they all have an export import bank. So we need to have one too. Um, well, <laughs> again, you, again know, you need an adult in the room to say, yeah, well, if they all jumped off a cliff. Yeah, exactly. So, um, unfortunately, back at the tail end of last year, it was uh, reauthorized for another seven years, so we won't be able to have like a substantial debate on it for the foreseeable future. But um, but uh, I think we did we were able to move the needle in, in some important ways up on Capitol Hill and, and kind of make our voice known on this particular issue. But it's a it's a massive form at the federal level of of cronyism. However, we define it as financial support or, or otherwise kind of protectionist. So when you talk about this through the lens of the of the uh... The vision. We talk about these barriers. These are barriers that are almost disguised barriers. They look like not so much barriers, but opportunities. But you have to look past what what is seen 
and really into the the opportunity cost, what is unseen, to see the barriers that are being being put up in place. Right. And that's why I get really excited to work on this issue because like those other issue policy issue areas that I mentioned earlier, you know, CJR, immigration or trade, even sometimes tax policy, um, you you have a lot of tangible examples to say we did we reformed X. Here's the effect or here's the even the negative effect of what's going on. But with this, you're right. So much of it is unseen um, by virtue of the fact that, you know, you're able to point to all of these, quote unquote, great things that, you know, your incentives were able to bring to bear, but at the same time, completely ignoring all the things that didn't come to bear. I can't, I can't show somebody a job that never existed, right? Um, so you have to kind of take on faith before you're familiar with kind of the inner workings of the the issue that um, while there might be a problem, I don't quite know, you know, what what are we losing out on? And so it, it takes some some getting used to, but that's why I enjoy working on the issue because it's a chance to really educate more and more people. And to be frank, the more people I talk to about this, the more, you know, you get, you know, some heads turning and it's like, well, what the hell? You know, I, I had no idea that this was such a massive issue. You know, I, I always, you, you hear all the time, at least I do. Well, I figured, you know, government did X, Y, Z with like, you know, tax credits and maybe they doled out a few subsidies here and there, but just to see the scale, uh, just to see people understand the exact scale and magnitude of it is very convincing. I'm glad that you brought up, you know, you've got to really, uh, you don't see them. And, and a lot of this understanding this and talking about this goes to a belief in, in the principles that make up, make up the vision. When you start talking about what, what's going to happen, you know, if we don't have this, then you start talking about things like spontaneous order, creative destruction. We don't mm-hmm. know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. but we know that if we look back at history, if we look at the most successful civilizations, they've relied on, on free people free markets and the principles that make up this vision to create the most good for the most people. And when you start having a a government get involved, putting their thumb on the scale, favoring one over another, centrally planning an an economy, you see more people getting hurt than people getting helped. It it happens almost every time. And that's that's what we're seeing here. Sometimes you're right. You just have to say, look, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know from experience it's probably going to be a lot better than what we have now. Right. And, you know, government favoritism, whether you call it cronyism, corporate welfare, protectionism, what have you, government favoritism is a corrupting force, right? Because it it erodes the your average person's um, sense in voluntary exchange. It distorts the free market. It distorts the idea that you know, I can trade with another person completely freely and on our own terms, right? Um, and it's hard to play in that. It's hard to play in that sphere to operate in that sphere, rather, as as a as a as an individual, as a business owner, um, when you have all of these people in back rooms with lobbyists and um, big money interests pulling the strings from behind you. The game is completely rigged before you've even sat down in front of the table, you know? Um, so it's it's really a question of being able to determine um, what what is being lost. You, you brought up creative, destruct, creative destruction, and I think that is absolutely crucial. Um, cronyism completely disregards that notion. I mean, it basically says we are the smartest people in the room and we know what is what it's going to take to create value. But what they're really doing in, quote unquote, creating value is 
shutting the door, slamming the door in everybody else's faces behind them, or kicking the ladder, that's a better metaphor, kicking the ladder out from under them, basically saying, well, you know, these guys are our political friends, these businesses, um, so we're going to make sure that they're okay. We're going to institute all of these things for their benefit and kind of everyone else be damned. And I think that is an incredibly powerful message once it kind of hits home. You know, once you're able to bring home to people, you know, the reason you the reason your taxes went up or the reason you didn't get uh, a tax rebate um, or the reason you didn't get um, or the reason, you know, your local government wasn't able to do or didn't decide to do any number of things that would have actually produced um, something of value to the community, um, you know, it went to, you know, this massive company down the block. So we're about 30 minutes into the podcast. And so far we've talked about what cronyism is and how it, uh, how it puts barriers in place. And if you uh, are feeling like, you know, you, you've heard enough, you want to, want to take a break, take, takes uh, some time to digest this. Now would be a good time to do that. Coming up in the next part of the podcast, we're going to be walking through uh, cronyism as seen through the lens of the four mutually reinforcing principles. So that's what's coming up next. Again, now would be a good time to take a break if you need to really think about what we've covered so far. If you don't need a break, let's get right into that. So when you think about cronyism through the lens of a mutual benefit, how would you how would you talk about cronyism uh, through that lens? Sure, it completely disregards the notion of mutual benefit, right? It plays into this idea that you know, exchange, free exchange is a zero sum game, right? It's this notion that we can decide who's going to win in a situation and needs to win um, and kind of leaves behind everybody else in its wake. Um, that's one thing I really like about our vision in particular, not just because I work on cronyism, but because what gets so lost in today's conversation about so many government policies, we see a lot of um, collectivist sort of quasi-socialist ideas being thrown around a lot more these days. Um, and what really animates me about our vision is the notion of mutual benefit because it is so, um, it, it has such faith, I suppose, in the ability of people to engage with one another in good faith and on their own terms. Um, and obviously there's a role for government in the sense that, you know, it needs to facilitate and, and uh, facilitate, um, uh, the protection of contracts, I suppose. Um, but outside of that, I mean, it ought to have a very limited role. If, if a firm is going to fail because it didn't receive tax credits or a big subsidy or whatever, while that's unfortunate, that's creative destruction on a grand scale. You know, I mean, maybe that business owner will then learn, well, this didn't work. This is very unfortunate. Dust myself off. Try something new, you know? Um it also goes to the idea of uh, of innovation. When you think about innovation, you think about protectionism or cronyism. And you think about mutual benefit. You have you have government out there propping up businesses, and because of that, they are not incentivized to be innovative. They're not incentivized to create new or better things as much as they would be if they were out on their own. And furthermore, it disincentivizes competition because people coming or businesses coming into that sector don't have the same uh, crutches, I guess, mm -hmm. as, as those that are already there. And so it's more difficult unless they have a really innovative um, way of doing things. That's not going to, they're not going to, they're not going to have much of a, of a help. 
So incentives are absolutely vital, right? And price signals um, in in a free market. And when you have when you have government injecting whatever it is, subsidies, tax incentives, loan guarantees, or other kind of uh, other kind of like protectionist preferential um, policies, you distort that that relationship between you know incentives and value creation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if I have if I have a reason to think that I don't need to make as much profit as I need to in a given year because I know I've got a big subsidy check coming my way, why why would I? Not that I. Why, not, the question shouldn't be why would I innovate. The question is, do I need to innovate? I suppose. Um, and furthermore, if I already know that I have a certain powerful entity supporting me, it insulates me from having to worry about my competition, right? And on the other side of that, if you were a competitor not receiving subsidies in this case, um, you are necessarily at a disadvantage because you can't, you know, you, you can't even, you don't even have access in a sense to the same market. You don't have the same support, I suppose. In other words, your your incentives have to be pure, you know, as they would be in a free market, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to have the, you know, the same kind of exposure right. or the same kind of opportunities, I suppose. We saw something like this in New Zealand when, mm-hmm. I mean, you think about subsidies, you don't think about farms. Uh, maybe some people don't. I know that a lot of people don't think about farm subsidies as a form of cronyism. Mm-hmm. But in New Zealand, they had a, a very serious budget crisis or, or you know, they, they, they just said, we've got to stop. And they stopped with yep. all of them. And what happened there was tons of innovation, Tons of creative destruction. Mm-hmm. And today in New Zealand, from everything I've read, the farmers in New Zealand actually lobby against mm-hmm. farm subsidies now. Mm-hmm. They don't want them because they've they've they know what has has happened with that in the past. And it, it hasn't been it hasn't been good for that industry. We started right with um, mutual benefit. For some reason I went right by equal rights. Um, let, let's go back and cover that. When you think about cronyism and equal rights, it, it seems kind of obvious when you have one business getting benefits that another isn't, that's unequal. Is yeah. What else is there? In in a perverse way, you could almost make the case that if there, if there are going to be government subsidies at all, I'm not arguing that there ought to be, but if there are going to be subsidies, you, in adherence to equal rights, you have to, you know, you have to give them to everybody, essentially. Um, I'm not arguing that at all, but for the purposes of an equal rights conversation, it again is completely distortive because you have you are you are telling an industry or a firm that you have uh, you are more equal, I suppose, than than other firms who don't receive preference. No, it's right out of animal form. Yeah, you know, some animals are more equal than others. Exactly, exactly, and uh, and and you know, jumping off of your farm, uh, your your two farm references, I should say. Well, I'm from Missouri. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, what we saw in New Zealand is a perfect example of uh, the positive effects of uh, reforming and decentralizing, um, in this case, farm subsidies, but subsidies generally. Um, and to the extent we were able to uh, kind of institute more of those kinds of reforms uh, in the United States, um, I think it will be a lot healthier industry. The farm industry in particular is probably the most protected industry, maybe outside of like financial services, um, in the United States. And 
Um, and, and we've seen several bailouts in the last couple of years under the Trump administration, uh, you know, to, to the tune of billions of dollars. Um, it, it's kind of ironic, really, because they, they wouldn't be needing the bailouts in the first place were it not for the trade protectionism against China that was engaged in by the same administration. So it's kind of a circular logic that just goes on and on and on. Well, we need to bail them out of the own problem, the same problem that we made. You know? No, that's that's not it's it's not exclusive to this. Almost sure. every and I don't want to get into too far of a tangent, but often the laws we see proposed today are to fix the problems created by the laws we passed yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And and what's interesting is is what the stories I've read about these bailouts. The farmers they interview say, you know, we don't want bailouts. We just want a market. We right. want a market. Just right. get out right. of our way and let us have a market. Right. And last I looked, um, and then we can move off of farm subsidies because I still have PTSD from this uh, <laughs> debate a couple of years ago. But uh, the last I looked, you know, you hear this this talking point all the time. Well, well, you know, farmers are their incomes are just completely depleted and they're you know this lowest point and again that's kind of some fuzzy math because last i looked i mean their incomes in terms of household are some of the highest on average in the country um i mean they're you know in terms of a household income they're they're not hurting as much as they would like to believe but i think to your point a lot of them would rather just be left alone which i think is the best policy ultimately and while there might be some families family farms or some farmers that are hurting there that is not exclusive to farm sure farming that's that that happens in every business there are some who are succeeding there are some who are not succeeding right i mean to your point about equal rights why why should farmers be more equal than others you know why you know if i if i have a struggling i don't even know um comic book store yeah something like that why shouldn't I receive something? You know, odds are there's probably a bailout out there somewhere for comic book stores, but man, <laughs> probably <laughs> who knows? So we've covered equal rights, mutual benefit. What about openness? Is there, how do you look at, at cronyism through openness? Sure. So this is um, something we haven't talked about in, in, in the session yet, but transparency is a major, majorly lacking point when it comes to cronyism. And it makes sense because states, and the federal government, they aren't going to come out and say, hey, this program is corporate welfare. They don't label it like that. You know, it's, it's always these, you know, very lofty kind of nice sounding programs, you know, right. economic development, all the very nice, pleasant sounding things. Um, but openness it's, it's a is a stimulus. Required. right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but openness requires transparency. Right. At least some level of operating on the same some some sense of operating on the same level right you can't begin to reform cronyism you can't you can barely begin to study cronyism unless there is transparency into how states are spending their money right you know where's the money coming from it's mostly tax revenue obviously um but where's it going why is it going there and there has to be some mechanism that allows um taxpayers to hold their policymakers and the lawmakers accountable, right? Because it's ultimately their money that is being taken and, and used for whatever reason that sounds good. So openness is a huge, um, a, a hugely important um, uh, factor in all of this, because without it, you are completely in the dark. And finally, self-actualization. I mean, I, I, I see it. Maybe I'm, I, I, maybe my thinking on it is different than yours, but how do you look at this cronyism through self-actualization? Oh, I'm on the spot now. I want to. I want to say the right answer. Well, <laughs> but, <laughs> look, look, the way I think about it is, I mean, the people who are out there who are 
who are starting their businesses. This is yeah. probably a form of self-actualization for them. Sure. They, they've, they, this is something they're passionate about. This is something they've wanted to do. It may have been a lifelong dream. And then they get out there and they find the competition is stacking the deck against them one small regulation at a time to the point where you can't start a business. It's just not, it's not fiscally possible mm-hmm. because you would have to make so much money or have to raise so much money that you can't. And now when you're trying to, to move forward with your life, when you're trying to live your best life, government standing there saying, hey, we're here to help. Fill out all these forms, get all these licenses, uh, pay all these fees, and pay all these uh, all your people this amount of money, and you can play the same game uh, that the people who've been here for 25 years stacking their, the deck against you are playing. Right. I think that's spot on. And it brings us back to the notion of barriers, right? Um, self-actualization is, you know, in my viewing of it, it's, it's the pursuit of somebody's of your human potential, Mm -hmm. right. As a, as a person. Um, and if my pursuit of self in of self-actualization requires that I want to start a business or some kind of endeavor, but I'm unable to do that because I'm required to jump through all of these government hoops, get all these licenses, comply with all of these regulations. And then at the end of the day, I'm still competing against all of these people who have the lawmakers in their back pocket. You know, why am I going to do that? Uh, unless you have a very, very good idea um, and one that you know um, can can be competitive. I mean, more power to you. But for most people, that's not going to be the case. You know, for most people, they're just going to say, well, this this part of my life is closed off to me. And I think that's fundamentally the biggest tragedy in all of this is so many again it's the unseen you know how many businesses never opened how many people never engaged in you know some kind of self-actualization um because they looked at the road ahead of them and realized that certainly government but a lot of other factors were were placed in their way to stop them you know i think a great example of this uh when i'm in town when i'm in in, in at headquarters i love going to this uh, taco shop near our near headquarters Best tacos I've ever had in in all of America. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love this place. Used to be a food truck. Mm-hmm. Was so successful as a food truck, it became a, bri- a brick and mortar restaurant. There are so many cities out there right now where the restaurant industry is creating these cronious barriers mm-hmm. against food trucks. And these are the, these are the people who run these food trucks. This isn't this isn't a job where they're like, oh. I guess I'll get off the couch and go start a food. This is something right. they're passionate about. They they love to cook. They love the opportunity. This food is you know very often something they've uh, they've dreamed of doing is is running their own restaurant. And mm. this is their stepping stone to get to where they want to be. Right. And you have businesses out there that are saying, "Sorry, you can't play in this game." Right. Well, you see the same thing in uh, some states with Airbnb, short-term mm-hmm. rentals, and uh, the state coming in and saying, I think Nevada was kind of the biggest, uh, uh, most recent case of this, um, but other states are doing it too, where, you know, I want to rent out my room, or I want to rent out my whole house, or my, you know, spare cabin in the back of my property, or whatever. Um, but suddenly, I'm not able to do that, not because I want to, like, make a ton of money, but maybe I just need some extra cash on the side for whatever reason. Or like the video we saw yesterday where the man was using the rent from Airbnb to help pay for his father's long-term, yeah. um, you know, living. Yeah. It, it, and now he, he can't do that because the state decided that hotels were more important mm-hmm. than, than good treatment for his father. Exactly. Um, and, and that's an excellent 
example of picking winners and losers and making sure that the big guy, again, who's able to provide a lot of political support, um, is able to uh, kind of come out on top. What is it that uh, that I don't know I don't know when it comes to this? So that I, I always try to wrap up a, these installments by asking, you know, that, that Rumsfeld, and there's things we know, there's things we don't know we don't know, there's things we don't know we know. I forget the quote. Sure. What is it I don't know I don't know? What are, what are we talking, what are we not talked about that we should? Well, I think what goes unsaid in a lot of this conversation is – it's solvable. We've talked a lot about how the issue is so broad and so vast and so nefarious um, that it almost seems insurmountable, right? Um, and and certainly one of my unknowns is uh, I, I don't know every variation of cronyism that ever exists because there because there are so many because it's such a pernicious kind of thing. Um, but one thing I like to remind people about is that this is a problem that we can tackle, right? It just takes education. It just takes learning about the issue and, and really not even being an expert on it, but just realizing that, hey, my tax dollars are being used in this way and that's messed up. Um, so I think a lot of it is just becoming more familiar with the issue, understanding how broad it is and to just be vigilant and to be on the lookout for it as, as much as you possibly can as a, as a voter and as a taxpayer. Um, that's, I'm sure something that you already knew anyway. So I'm kind of sidestepping your question. Um, but working on cronyism is kind of a blessing and a curse because it's, um, it's a pretty straightforward issue, right? So it it makes a lot of sense on the surface. Um, but it's also something that it's, it's cursed because it's so broad and there's so many, it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole a lot of the time. So, um, a lot of the ways uh, to think about it is how to be strategic on a reform level instead of constantly going around, you know, whacking down subsidies one at a time. You know, what's the root issue there that we can really work together as a community to combat? Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's top priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.